It is my great pleasure to kind of announce our guest speaker for today, Pastor Eli Garza, um, lifelong Detroiter. I um, actually graduated from U of M with an engineering degree before going on to enter the ministry. He served as an associate pastor for a number of years at First Spanish Baptist Church and then became their senior pastor before retiring in 2019. Um, sorry. Leon recommends him to you all as a servant leader, a gospel-centered theologian, and an example of godly character in Detroit, and it's our great pleasure. Please join me in welcoming uh, Pastor Garza. Well, I didn't expect uh, Leon to give me all those fancy titles, but uh, uh, I, I want to share a little bit about my background because um, I'm really excited to be here because I worked in and ministered in Detroit for, for many decades. Um, and I'm excited about your desire to have a multi-ethnic church, and, uh, and which I think is a biblically honorable goal to have, to strive for, and something I value deeply. Uh, that was my dream ever since I was uh, a little kid watching Star Trek and seeing... Uh, and seeing the, the bridge of the Enterprise have all sorts of nationalities and aliens as well. So I, I made that my, my, my drive ever since 1967. So that tells you how old I am. And uh, you can start calculating the ages here a little bit. Yeah, and just a little bit, of, you know, just being here with you at worship and the way you interact, it's just like uh, we used to do that at First Spanish as well. Uh, I was a member of First Spanish Baptist. It's located in southwest Detroit, so it's on the rival side of town. Someone said he didn't want to let Westsiders know that you have things. Well, you let a Westsider in. I'm sorry. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, it's located southwest Detroit, just south of Livernois. And so if you know that area, uh, I, I, I uh, uh, was a member there for about 50 years. Uh, I served in lay ministry for 25 years there. That means that I worked as a Sunday school teacher, deacon, and then later the Lord called me into ministry, so I was in pastoral ministry for close to 20 years. My wife, Diane, who's here, uh, we met there at First Spanish. She's originally from uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which you know is very, very different than Detroit, uh, even Philadelphia, just nearby. Uh, and she's been uh, serving at for, uh, for Spanish for over 33 years. So she has a lot of experience uh, as well. All my youth and my adult life, I had a heart for reaching the city of Detroit, uh, besides watching Star Trek on Channel 50. Uh, I was born in November in 1956, in, also in southwest Detroit, just three blocks from the church where I served. The hospital was called Zeger. It later uh, became, uh, it left the neighborhood and moved out to Farmington Hills with the name of uh, Botsford, and now it's part of the, uh, the Beaumont uh, system of hospitals. Uh, a lot of things start in Detroit, don't they? And they moved out. My parents were Mexican immigrants, and we spoke Spanish at home. My parents wanted to go back to Mexico and wanted me to enter my same level of grade here in the United States in Mexico so I wouldn't be behind. So my mother was a school teacher. She even became an associate principal. Uh, so she taught me how to read and write in Spanish even before I learned English when I entered uh, Detroit schools. So uh, Spanish is, is my kernel language. For those of you who know, in, you know uh, IT, that's the, the very core of, of my thinking. So sometimes when I forget a word, I'll blurt it out in Spanish because I remember that. You know, just the other day I did that. I couldn't remember the word for magnify. The first word that came out of my mouth was lupa, which is the Spanish word for magnifying glass. So if I ever get a bump in the head, um, I won't be able to talk in English probably. <laughs> anyway, um, I spent my summers from the age of 2 to 18 in the city of Monterey, Mexico, which is in northeast Mexico. Um, I always like to talk about it on Facebook and Twitter. It's the largest... Uh, North American city you probably never heard of. Uh, it, it, it has about 5.2 million people, so it's bigger than Detroit now. Uh, when my parents left it in the mid-50s, it only had 300,000. So it was a very small city, and it just exploded uh, to be uh, uh, one of the major cities of North America. Like I said, that you don't hear about a lot, 
But if you're in the auto industry, you do know that city because it's the uh, automotive capital of, of Mexico and probably of Latin America as well. I became fully bilingual because I spoke Spanish at home and visited Mexico so often. I studied later at University of Michigan. So MSU fans, I'm sorry to, to disappoint you. I'm not from MSU. Uh, but uh, I received my degree in civil engineering and I worked as a structural engineer for 20 years in projects uh, both in the United States and in Mexico. And uh, because I spoke Spanish, I was sent by my companies to Mexico to, to help in those kind of projects. But I felt called to go into ministry uh, starting in the late 90s. And uh, I felt the Lord asking me to use my bilingual, bicultural skills not to enhance my resume, which, I, which it would have, but instead to, to enhance the kingdom and the kingdom's resume. So in 99, I left my career as an engineer, began working as associate pastor. And uh, later on went to, uh, little by little to uh, seminary at, at Moody Theological in, in uh, Plymouth and where I finally, it took forever to get my degree and, uh, and my MDiv degree. First Spanish, let me tell you a little bit about First Spanish. It, uh, it started as a Spanish-speaking only church in 1960. Uh, so it's now uh, over 60 years old. Uh, but after 10 years, and I realized that the church needed to use English in order to reach the second and third generation Latinos and a lot of people forget that uh, people think that immigrants don't assimilate, don't learn the language. That's a common prejudice that we hear, especially in the last five years. But that's not true. All ethnic groups adjust to life in the United States, and usually it's the their children and grandchildren that become fluent in English. It's hard for those uh, of us who are older than our mid twenties to learn a different language. So it, it, it is difficult, and that's why you hear people from other countries have an accent, because they learn English later in life. When you learn English like I did at the age of four and five, well, and you live immersed in it, you're not going to have an accent. And uh, I've even had people accuse me, Garza, you, you, you must not speak Spanish because you speak English without an accent. So that's the, the prejudice that sometimes I have to encounter uh, as many of you have also, and, and for other reasons. But uh, First Spanish then became uh, probably Michigan's first bilingual church among Latinos uh, in order to reach the second and third generation. And then because of that, we were able to become more multicultural. So we were able to attract not only Anglos, but also African Americans, Asians as well, as well as uh, different nationalities among Latinos. People don't realize La Latinos are not this big monolith Everybody is the same culture. There's over 20 nations. And there's a reason why there's so many, because Latinos just don't get along. And, <laughs> you know, and, and we see a similar pattern among our Arab friends. There's 20 Arabic-speaking Arabic nations. They also don't get along as well. And that's part of our human nature. Regardless of language or culture, we, we like to divide. That's just part of our, our nature. That's why we need a savior. And we'll touch on that a little in, in a few minutes as well. But uh, we had over 15 Latin American nations re represented, so we were unusual. Usually people break out into their own little homogenous groups. So having a mix is, is even unusual among Latinos. Here in, in Michigan, most Latino churches that are Spanish only tend to divide by their region. So we have churches with only Caribbean people. We have people with only Central Americans, you know, others uh, uh, with other nationalities. So having a mix, one church across the street was completely Guatemalan from one particular department, which is like their states of Guatemala. So that's how much people separate, regardless of their nature. It's just, like I said, part of our human nature to look for people who are just like us. And we don't like mixing. And I believe that God challenges us as the body of Christ to go against world pressure, to go against our society's pressure, because we follow a very different plan. So that's another taste for what's coming up here in a few minutes. And guys, I'm sorry if I keep you late from your golf appointment, but uh, hopefully it'll, it'll be worth it for a little later. <clears throat> so our church also evolved into um, being also not only multicultural because we allowed the expression of the different cultures. Multi-ethnic, from my definition, is that we have all different ethnicities, 
but everybody acts and worships in only one style. And that's what many of our large metropolitan Detroit churches are. They're multi-ethnic, but uh, they're not multicultural because their worship and the preaching still follows a, a particular group, which is usually white middle class. Our, we, uh, we spoke in two languages. Our music included not only worship songs like what you had this morning and that we would sing it both in English and in Spanish, but as well, uh, my preaching was in English and in Spanish. The previous pastor was as well. And we allowed the style. So sometimes some of our, our songs had a very distinct Latin style. Sometimes they had an American style. I encouraged the youth to express themselves. So we had young people use rap music to express themselves in worship. So that, that made it definitely multicultural. And, and because of that, we were able to have people from all different walks of life People with master degrees, master degrees all the way down to people who barely were making it through elementary school as adults. Uh, we attracted people from Wayne, Oakland, Macomb counties, Washtenaw, as well as even from Windsor. So we definitely had a very cosmopolitan congregation. Um, I resigned in October 2019, and, and I wish it could have been a retirement, but it wasn't. We had to, I had to resign because my father-in-law became very ill. And he lived in eastern Pennsylvania, 550 miles away from us. So it was too hard to manage his health and his care from so far away. And, and we needed to move. And uh, um, he, his health did continue to deteriorate. And sadly, he passed away from COVID in April of 2020. And then shortly thereafter, my wife and I both contracted COVID. Um, uh, as COVID hits, usually men worse than women. Uh, women are much stronger than us men. That's why we cry when we have a cold. And, and women keep working around the house and go to work. And, you know, they teach. They continue to go to the hospital, whatever, as a nurse. And uh, we, we tend to, to, to fall apart. And I did for a week. I was hospitalized. And it took me four months to recover. My wife, it only took her a few days to recover. So, uh, uh, and now I'm standing here before. So I take very seriously your concern for protecting your fellow con members in the congregation and community with your masking, um, being a, a survivor of COVID. Uh, I agree 100% with your care and concern. And uh, we'll touch on that as well a little bit uh, later. So stay tuned. Don't go off to Top Golf yet. So I understand the, the beauty and the value of a multi-ethnic church. I comprehend its unique nature they're very deep challenges because this is the way most church planters are taught not to do church uh, it's always more difficult not to be a homogenous unit to, to bring in people from different uh, walks of life and perspectives and yet our country needs diverse congregations and we need it because it, first of all it's biblical it's not being uh, of a certain philosophy or political persuasion it's very rooted deeply in the scriptures. Do you know the very first bilingual, bicultural congregation in the Bible? That one was in Jerusalem. And we see it very clearly in Acts 6. So that's God's heart right from the beginning. Antioch, Rome, Corinth. These were not cities made of only one kind of person and only one kind of community. So I admire you. And it's my desire to be an encouragement to you this morning I honor your vision. I love it. It's the kind that I had as well for many, many years. So I, I support anybody else that, that wants to reach out in a, in, a, in a very challenging area of Detroit. Um, I know Detroit. I know it very well. And so I'm, I'm with you as well. Before I start, can I pray? Heavenly Father, I just ask you, you continue to guide and bless the work here at Mac Avenue, Lord, I know that those who have gathered here want to love their community, reach out to it. They want to use their gifts, their talents, their treasure to touch this area that many neglect. And Lord, we know that many call Detroit still Low Rohama, those areas especially outside of Midtown and Downtown. And we ask you, Father, continue to bring in people with a heart to serve, to have a spirit of reaching out to those who have deep needs and to have the willingness 
to be in an environment that is deeply challenging, that is very hard, that at times can be extremely discouraging. Be with them, pour your spirit on this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was hinting, we live in a very deeply divided time in our nation. It's divided in many, many ways. In fact, because I can pull out the old guy card, I can say that it's very similar to what I experienced back in the 60s and in the first half of the 70s. And back then, like today, even the evangelical church was very, very divided. So we've been here before. It's, wor- it's been worse in the Civil War, of course. That era of the country was deeply divided to the point of warfare. And so we think today is very unique or it's horrible, which it isn't good at all, I agree. But it's, we've been here before. And the Bible, fortunately, is designed by God to encourage us, to guide us through when we're divided by politics, by economics, by ethnic disharmony, which continues to grow instead of getting better. The Bible guides us even through theological and social battles. So just like today, we've been through times of intense divisions. And it grieves me deeply, especially because I am a little older. I experience the repetition of history. I see history repeating itself. I see the evangelical church repeating similar mistakes. And I see us continue to be, again, poor testimonies of our faith in Christ, which only aggravates those who don't know Christ. And they judge us at times incorrectly. But at times they judge us correctly because they see very clearly the contradiction of what we teach and what we we actually do. So is there a way forward? Can we heal from our divisions caused by what I believe is very improper discipleship. Discipleship should be based on the study of the word. Sadly, today, we have a lot of other avenues of grabbing our attention, and so we are discipled, but discipled with different principles and different teachers than we should be listening to. So I believe it's, it's vital to return to the basics of the faith, in our mission, especially as believers in Jesus, we've been distracted by all this different and incorrect discipleship, both in secular and very sadly, especially in our own city, by Christian media. So I would like to explore three basic discipleship concepts that we believers ought to be focusing and refocusing and evaluating what we say and what we do on a consistent basis. So join me first by going to the very first basic principle. And that one we find in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. That passage is much longer, but we're going to go through different Bible passages. So I'm I'm taking some bits and pieces out, not out of context, but I want to show you some of these basic principles. So the first one in Luke 10, 25 to 28 says this. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, that's Jesus. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So the first principle here is to love God and to love our fellow human being. This expert in the Old Testament law wanted to trick Jesus somehow into contradicting their faith. Jesus was able to catch it. He perceives that this question really is a trick question. It's not sincere. But instead turns the question around and he asks him, what are the basic premises of their faith? So the law expert responds and says the first one must be loving God entirely with every aspect of one's being, one's emotions, one's actions, one's work, one's studies, what one thinks, what one uh, plans, what one does with one's hands. And the second step is to love one's neighbor. In Greek, there's a term called plesion. Plesion means that it's the person closest to one. It's our peer. 
In English, we use the word neighbor, but if you grew up on Sesame Street you, or you remember Mr. Rogers, you think it's the person next door, all right? Someone a little more distant than you. But, you know, if you're married, your closest blession, your closest neighbor is your spouse. It's the person right next to you. In fact, Spanish is even clearer. The Spanish word for neighbor is proximo, which means comes from Latin proximus, the person exactly right next to you. Not someone two houses down or a block away. It's someone who is immediately next to you. I prefer the term then uh, fellow human being. It's a little more clear in, in the way we think and act today. So Jesus affirms the answer. He tells him, yes, these are the right basic principles of the faith. And if you follow this, this leads you to communion with God. And so the rest of the passage, in fact, Jesus continues to challenge that expert in Old Testament law by giving him the story of the Good Samaritan, a person who was despised in society, the Samaritan, yet was the one who could actually demonstrate these principles of loving God deeply and then loving their neighbor. So it was the person most despised, the wrong ethnicity, the wrong social class that actually understood God's teaching and put it into practice. And by his helping that crime victim, just like we see in today's cities, he demonstrated God's love and action in caring for others. So that's a basic of the faith. The Old Testament law expert understood that. This is not news to him. He was trying to twist the scriptures. But he wanted to get an interpretation from Jesus that would justify how the majority of Jews looked at their fellow human being. They were good fellow human beings, and they were nasty ones. And we needed to stay away from the nasty ones, and we only had to love the ones that we like, the ones who are just like ourselves. This passage that that law expert quoted was from Deuteronomy 6, deep in the Old Testament, part of the basic teachings of Torah. So he couldn't avoid it, but he, had to, he wanted to look at it from a very different perspective and wanted someone to justify his view that love is to be very limited, it has boundaries, and it's only for those who are acceptable, not the ones whom they despised. He knew of God's command to love the neighbor, to love the fellow human being, the outsider, the foreigner. In fact, he knew of this verse, which pretty much blew away his exclusive view of love in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you are aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God made it clear that loving strangers, foreigners, is an integral part of being obedient to his commands. Not only is he saying that, he's making a declaration. He's putting his seal of approval. Seal in ancient times represented the power of a government. That's why at the, at the tomb of Christ, the Romans put their seal around the rock. If you break the seal, you are breaking the authority, the power, the strength of Roman military power. And if you break this, all this will come down on you. That was a frightening thing to see the seal of Rome on there. Interesting how Paul tells us that believers were sealed with who? The Holy Spirit. That's why demons cannot oppress you or take over your body. The devil can't make you do things because you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells all spiritual creatures you belong to God. And if you try to touch one of these, my little ones, you have to deal with God Almighty himself. So we are sealed with the Spirit. That means that we have to be obedient in the Spirit. And how we love others has to follow what's written in God's truth. So that means that part of our division that we have, spite against the immigrant, spite against those of, of, of a lower socioeconomic level, is disobedience and intense disobedience to God because God makes it clear. You have to love and accept those who are strange in your land because I, God, said so. Okay, This isn't some fancy speaker. This isn't some political leader. And it's not a, a some kind of social political philosophy. This is a direct command from scriptures. 
And yet when believers engage in that behavior, they are sinning intensely, directly, and deliberately. Because why? Because I am the Lord your God. And you have to remember that you were foreigners at one time. That applies even to the church because this is part of the definition of love. Jesus proves it in the story of the Good Samaritan. Who was the foreigner in that story? The Samaritan, the person from another country, the half-breed. Remember, they weren't the right ethnicity because they were mixed ethnic people. That tells us that God doesn't look at our definitions of ethnicity, doesn't look at our definitions of nationality. In the contrary, he sees us all as one human race that is desperately in need of salvation, that's in desperately need of repair, that is in desperate need of healing, mental healing. It should be no surprise that right now during COVID, we have such mental anguish that we're seeing people going crazy on airlines people attacking each other verbally even physically in stores or businesses because there's something wrong with our human nature and we need a savior and the basics tell us that love is the first step of providing the medicine for human heart god so loved the world he sent his one and only son so to do what to bring us to healing, to give us forgiveness for all the messiness, the wrongness of our hearts. And then for us to grow in obedience and do what he tells us to do. Those are the what? The basics of the faith. Everything I told you, for those of you who are longtime members, you learned in vacation Bible school. You learned it in a coloring page when you were seven or eight. And yet the evangelical church of North America has lost its bearings. It's being discipled by the wrong book. It's being discipled by the wrong teachers. It's being discipled by the wrong emphasis. It's being discipled by other philosophies, but not the direct philosophy of our scripture. You know what the word for hospitality is in Greek? It's philoxenia. Philo meaning love, exenia meaning stranger. Love of the stranger. That's the Greek word for hospitality. So that tells us that hospitality is not just serving tea and cookies. It's not watching Martha Stewart or Rachel Ray. It's loving people deeply. It's providing protection for them. It's providing honor for them. That's what the Middle East looks at hospitality. That's what the Far Eastern nations look at hospitality. It's not the American Western definition of having a nice clean living room and having snacks available. It's an intense love. It's a deep love. It's protective love. It's justice love. This is what the scriptures teach us. Not that our house is our castle and no one can ever enter it. And our desire is never to serve others, but it's always for others to serve us. And we see it clearly even back in the Old Testament. And this command of loving the stranger, philoxenia, hospitality, continues on into the New Testament because we see James in James 2.1 say this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Then we jump at verse 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. There's that basic word. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. That's also very clear. That has another seal of God's word, the royal law. Love God and then what? Love your neighbor. Love the, your fellow human being. Love the person next to you are the basics of the faith and james tells us all those things god said about your fellow human back in the old testament apply to us still to us today and if you break that you're actually breaking god's moral law you cannot do this this has this has no place in the body of christ loving our fellow human being doesn't allow us to show favoritism or selectively preferring one group of people over another. 
It isn't limited just to ethnicity, but it's also socioeconomic groups. It's even political perspectives. We cannot discriminate because that would be a violation of God's, of God's and Christ's basic teaching. The church is to be a very different society. It's very different than what we live on this planet. It's a place where foreigners, where people of different ethnicities, languages, social positions, their life experience, what they do for a living, all is acceptable and tolerated and appreciated and loved. And this is one of the most basic core principles for believers to make their own, to apply it in their daily living, both inside the church and even outside. Even outside. Somehow we believe that what's written in the word applies to these walls and that's it. And maybe the little island of belief in your own home. But these apply to how we approach even the non-believer. What do they see? What do they see? So let's go on now to the second basic principle. And that love wants to value and honor God's truth. Paul said this back in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. If we love God and we love our fellow human being, we will love truth. Not lies, not false stories, not false history, not myths, not conspiracy theories, or intentional misrepresentation of facts or events, or how nature works, like science. We're supposed to be a people that honors reality and not fantasies. We're supposed to be a people that, that honor the way God made the universe and understand the condition, not only the human heart, but why society is in such trouble. We are to be people of truth, not people of fantasy, not people what we want the universe to be like or our world to be like. We are to be people of what really is happening, reality. We're supposed to have very clear vision, understanding. And that should be our reputation. Not because that's what I say so. It's again, written clearly in the word. If you love others, you're going to do what? You're going to rejoice in the truth. You don't receive and accept deception. In fact, it becomes an engine inside of us to always seek those things that are factual and truthful. Paul reminded Timothy of this in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Have nothing to do with what? Myths. Don't follow rumors. What are your sources of understanding and information? Where are they coming from? Why are they saying these things? What is the physical evidence for their reality? And we see today many believers are not asking these questions. We're following what maybe fits some kind of model or some kind of teaching we followed, even though it has no basis in reality. And that is a horrible testimony to the world. The world sees that. Wait a minute, you believe in fantasies. Why are you believing in myths? How come you're following rumors? When evidence is clear, what you're believing is false. How can we proclaim God's truth when we don't understand reality? And we've lost our bearings. We've lost the basic of understanding that we are to love truth. Jesus uh, asked about this as well in his prayer at Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion. In John 17, 15, 18, we read this part of his prayer. My prayer is that you not is that is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You see. Jesus' prayer is for his people to be strong in the world. He didn't call us to isolate ourselves, to live in little monasteries or nunneries. He didn't call us to live in isolated little communities, whether it's in the city or in the suburbs, to stay away from the world. We're supposed to infiltrate it. That's why he says we're salt. Salt does nothing in its little jar. Salt 
does its effect when it's put on meat, when in vegetables, whatever, because it gives flavor. It's maybe not visible, but good salt, when it's added to a good recipe, is, is spread out through the food we're eating. It's not clumped together. It's spread out, and that's what the idea of, of the church is. It's not to be clumped together. It's to be spread out. It's to be involved. It's to be active. Not following the principles of this world. On the contrary, to be faithful to the truth. The truth that leads us because we love others. We love others. We love the truth. And Jesus is that we not isolate ourselves, but have the strength to resist the teachings of the evil one. He is a real being, but he's not God. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not as smart as God. He's not as powerful as him. Sadly, too many believers sell Satan, sell the evil one as an anti-God, that he's an equal and opposite force. That's not true. He's a lot weaker than many times we even think. In fact, John tells us that greater is the one that is in us that is in the world. So we have the ability to resist the false discipleship that we're getting. We have the ability to resist being exactly like the society we're in. We have the ability to think biblically and well. Today, we have this great privilege, uh, very cheaply at a low cost, to have God's entire word in a little box like this, literally. Right? Remember, it used to be in big scrolls that had to be copied by hand that took days and years to do. It was expensive to have your own copy. Right? You couldn't take your scroll home because that was an expensive item and it was heavy. So today we have no, no, no excuse for not having hunger for the word. Right? Today we could even put it in the phone. Right? After we post what we're eating on Twitter, we can actually look up a Bible verse right away. Right? We have no excuse. There's no reason why we, can, we, we, we should neglect God's truth. But what do we do? We like the sensational. We, we want our lives to be Jerry Springer. We want it to be spectacular. We want to have a fight. On social media, I want to tear down others who disagree with me. Because that feels good. Man, that adrenaline rush. I own that guy. Yay. And truth says no. Truth says we, we have to love and when we disagree, we do it in a way that demonstrates we love people. It demonstrates that we, even, even though we disagree, we respect that person's value. Because we love the stranger. He looks in Ia. Because we believe in the basics of our faith. And even though Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or others want to disciple us, or Christian radio in the afternoon wants to disciple us a certain way, we resist it. Not because we have a political philosophy that's different. It's because the scriptures scream at us. Don't do what the world does. Don't follow false assumptions. Don't follow blanket generalizations or assumptions or suppositions. We don't follow the by any means necessary philosophy of this world to achieve our purposes. We have a focus, and the focus is the truth. And we apply and learn the truth, and we demonstrate it through our everyday talk, the, the way we act, the way we even argue with others. Jesus defines that the Father's word is the truth. That's the scriptures. That's where we start. And it's his will. We don't have to ask, God, is it your will for me to study your word? No, it's already there. It's his will to study the scriptures and to put them into practice. Not to be great Bible trivia knowledge so that when we go on Jeopardy, we want you know, that question on the Bible for 400. No, we want to apply it every single day. We want to apply it with our children and at home. And so Jesus prays for us to, to be sent out into our societies as God's ambassadors to proclaim his message of forgiveness of sins, salvation only through Christ alone, and serving God, in the societies that we live in. You're doing a great job having the commons. What a wonderful idea. You designed a, 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 a business that actually meets the needs of the community, a laundromat. And then you were even really innovative. You combined it with a coffee shop. Now, how often does that happen? Not 
very much, but it was needed. You had a good vision. You understood what your community needed. You didn't build another type of structure that this community already has. You wanted to do something unique for them. And then you made it a place to invite others to come. Why? Because we know people are afraid of church. They're afraid of Christians. Because sadly, our testimony, instead of being one of come, we love you. It's been come and let's beat you up. Let's do what we can to marginalize you. And when you leave, we want you to feel destroyed. What we want people to know and understand is that, yes, they are sinners. Yes, their lives are a mess. But God still loves you deeply. And he wants to take you slowly and little by little to sanctify you. What does that mean? We don't become instantly holy. We don't become instantly perfect. It's a lifelong process. And the Bible tells us sanctification is a process. It's not an instantaneous thing. Some churches teach that, which puts a horrible burden on people because they realize, man, I'm really imperfect. How am I ever going to be perfect? I've got to get saved every week because I'm, I'm so imperfect. Sanctification is not perfection. It's the growth and process toward it. And that is why we have to get stuck on the truth, not lies, not fairy tales, not generalizations, not assumptions, not stories, but facts. That's what the world is looking for. What is truth? And we have something to offer. Because it's not our opinion, and it's not our political perspective. It is God's word itself. And then Jesus says what? We are to be isolated. We aren't to be cut off from the world, but rather penetrating it, influencing it with our words. That's why having a job as, as a teacher, a plumber, someone that, that picks up the refuse in the city, those are honorable jobs. They're infiltrating, they're penetrating society. All of those are absolutely needed. They're not jobs that are inferior to the pastor or to the associate pastor or a teacher or an elder. God wants us infiltrating society. So each one of our professions that, is, that are honorable and help others is critical and it's needy. Secretary, bus driver, assembly line worker. If you are contributing to the betterment of our society, of our world, then you are vital and necessary. And so your mind needs to be focused on Lord God, your father, on your neighbor, the person next to you, your fellow human being, and then truth, because truth is guiding your life, how you behave, how you speak, and what you do. And all this is for God's glory so that we bring others into the next phase, which is the third basic principle. We are to love God's nation. That's God's kingdom. But I prefer the word nation. Unless we're Canadians, we don't understand royalty anymore. Okay, royalty is like Lord of the Rings, fairy tales, Cinderella, Right? Americans, North Americans, South Americans, there's no royalty in South America either. So kingdom sounds like something fairy ish I prefer the term God's nation because that's what kingdoms were. They were nations. Right? A modern term would be a, a, a nation. So we are to love God's nation. And we've lost the notion that God's nation is to be driving us as a church. We ought to understand that that is part of our mission. That's what Jesus said, go out into the world to do what? To make a name for ourselves so that people watch what we're eating on Twitter? No, it's to bring people to become citizens of his nation. That's what we're called to do. So Jesus said his nation is not a physical one, but it's instead a very different spiritual nation that has a very different government. In John 18, 36... Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The night before he was crucified, he was arrested. What did Peter do? He pulled out a sword and he cut off one of the soldier's ears. But what was Jesus' response? Yay, Peter, you show him. I'm glad you come armed to our prayer meetings. Isn't that wonderful? God bless you because you take advantage of your right to bear an arm. 
No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus took that mutilated body part. You can imagine how bloody that was. And he performed a healing. And he demonstrated, this is how we are to treat our enemies. Not to depend on our arms to protect us from evil. We have better and powerful arms. And the arms is love. And it's loving those who despitefully use us. It's the ones who are setting us up for failure. These are the strangers we need to be loving. This is what my nation is all about. It's not of this planet. In fact, it's extraterrestrial, isn't it? And so he calls his people in this nation to be aliens in this world. This is not to be our final destination. We cannot consider achieving high rank and purpose and wealth on this life as our ultimate goal for living. Yet, what do many churches teach? Name your wealth. Claim your healing. And yet Jesus says, our, the, the nation I'm building is very different. It has something to do with this world, but it doesn't follow the principles here. To bring as many people into this new citizenship, we're going to follow a whole different constitution. We're going to use arms of spiritual power. And Jesus' death and resurrection shows us that he has enormous power and that his truth is found in scriptures. We are to love so differently than this world does. In Luke 6, 32 to 36, we read this. It's a little, it should be on two, on two, um, uh, two slides. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect to repay, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to repay in full. But Jesus says, here's what the nation is like in verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So we're, go- we're called to go against our human nature. Hey, he hurt me. I got to pay him back. I got to do what's necessary. I got to make sure that they suffer for what they've done to me. So we're told we cannot love only a select few. On the contrary, we have to love even those who despitefully use us. People love those who love them back. Everybody does that. There's nothing new about that. That's, that's human nature. We repay. We like using the term karma. We give good karma back to those who give it to us. But Jesus says we are to love our enemies, to do the right thing to them, and not to return the evil they have given us. When people disagree with us on social media, we don't, we're not supposed to attack back and mock them and ridicule them. And if other people in our neighborhood are helped by us and they never help us back, that's fine. God credits that to you. He knows what you're doing. And yes, that may take time out of your life, even money, even emotional investment that you make in others who in turn do not return it back to you. God knows that. And God has called you to do that by infiltrating this planet. Because we are to tell people this way of life is not everything. There's more. Not only is there more, there's better principles. And these principles are found in the constitution of God's nation. And that is found in the scriptures. Another rule of this different nation is that we reflect God's attributes in this world. Which includes kindness to those who despise us. And those who despise even God. If you've been to university like, like I have, I remember way back in 1975, you know, before many of you were born. That's when your parents probably were born. But I remember being in geology class and my professor mocking believers. Any of you believe in Genesis? That don't raise your voice in class because you'll get a bad grade. So I, knew what, I know what it's like not to be valued. 
But the other Christian guys in, in class, all we did was to re be respectful. Sometimes we asked questions. Sometimes we, we wanted to understand things instead of debating with them. Well, teacher, you're obviously misled. You're, you're an atheist. You're stupid. We're the smart ones, and we know you. We know what you're up to. In fact, you're trying to indoctrinate us. No, our attitude was what? Learn as much as we could. Ask the questions for things we didn't understand. We knew we had to understand their perspective of things. The wrong thing was to constantly challenge him and to argue and fight with them and somehow think we could beat him. The attitude is that we had to take one of humility, of understanding and learning, and learn facts that we had to know. And then learn maybe different interpretation of those facts. Why? So we could be better prepared. And many times it's better that we don't open our mouths and show we're fools than to open them and show that we really are. If we don't know what we're talking about, isn't it better to be quiet and silent and learn before we give an opinion or a declaration of reality? That's part of being of God's nation. That we are known by our speech, not because our speech has magic words and these words form reality. It's because these words communicate the principles of God's nation. And when people hear us, that we act just like everybody else, that we ridicule, we humiliate, we bully others, no wonder they despise the church. No wonder they're afraid to come through our doors. If you're like that out on the street, at the store, or on social media, why would I trust you with my heart? There's something wrong. Our testimony is hurt, not because there are others like my professor who are out to get us. It's because we ourselves are disobedient to the constitution of God's nation. And when they hear vitriol spewing out of Christian radio or on Christian television, they immediately judge all of us in the same fashion. What can we do to show that we are discipled differently? that we're not discipled by cable news or Christian news media, that rather we're discipled by the scriptures, and that we want others to come into God's nation, his kingdom as well. When we encounter opposition or spite, we're to use very different methods and tactics, not used by our culture. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That's the power that's afforded to believers in Christ. Power to demolish strongholds. But it's not the weapons of this world. Right? It's not ridicule. It's not arrogance. It's not devaluing others. It's not being narcissistic, using hyperbole to express what we believe or have. It's being truthful, direct. It's being loving, even to those who don't deserve our love, especially to them. Those are the weapons of God's nation. That's the army of God to extend his nation. It's not insult, destruction, belittlement it's the opposite and these have spiritual power and effects and this is how we both live and proclaim that our citizenship is not on this planet it's not in this physical territory our allegiance is to a nation that we cannot see but we're hoping to see one day soon and we're preparing for it and we want others to prepare for this great nation and that our patriotism is not based on past behavior or, or other actions in history, but rather our patriotism is based on what is real, just as much as the Lincoln Memorial or the U.S. Congressional Capitol Building. What we believe is real. It's not fake. It's not fantasy. It's reality. And instead, we're being distracted by the things that are fake and our fantasy and our inventions of thought. Paul tells us this again, that our most powerful weapon 
is unity in the body of Christ and love toward those outside. Here's a verse that many people like to white out, especially now during COVID. Philippians 2, 2 through 4. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I don't know if you remember, but Jefferson made the Bible. He liked Jesus as a philosopher. So he cut out all the parts of Jesus' deity, his miracles, anything like that. His Bible is really, really thin. It's called the Jeffersonian Bible. And in many ways, we are all Jeffersonians. We have taken the Bible and we cut out all the verses we don't like. Demands that Christ of our lives to be different from this world to be placing ourselves at God's service even at great cost to us we don't like those verses we want the verses that say that Jesus will answer our prayer we like the verses that we are more than conquerors we like the verses that tell us that we can lean on Christ for our healing but we'll cut out all these other ones that require us to humilify to, to humble ourselves to bend our knee to a higher master, a higher power. We don't like those verses that call us to confess our sins, to seek repentance, to be in constant growth, that sanctification. We don't like those verses. And this is one that today is ejected, it's vilified by our own people. Because this verse tells us that we are to seek peace, not constant battles. We are to be united as a congregation in one purpose. We are to value in others' interest above our own. We are to seek to heal other people's wounds, the injustices in our societies, to meet the physical needs of those who can't do so, to seek out others' health and care. These are powerful spiritual weapons, and they're in our spiritual arsenal. They're the ones that God invites us to take to prayer meetings. Not our sword, not our gun, not our sharp tongue, not a fistful of fantasies to argue with against people, but it's the move against the evil one's method and tactics, which includes those physical arms, the sharp tongue, the belittlement, and the anger. Those are the evil one's methods. And our tactics are to bring Southern to God's nation with his methods. They don't make sense in this world, but that's the idea. This world is not everything. There's a much bigger kingdom out there a much bigger nation a more powerful one and that's the one god calls us to invite others into believers are not allowed to build an altar dedicated to our own preferences or our own whims but rather to be outward focused so that our fellow human beings can see our purpose our peace our joy and that we love God's nation, that we want to serve others, even those outside who are not citizens, so that they can experience the touch of God's love, peace, and joy as well. The world needs faithful believers and needs discipled believers in the word of God, not by Christian media or mass American media. It needs us discipled by the truth, not by falsehoods. We have to go back to the basics. We've forgotten the basics. Love God, love our neighbor, love God's truth, and love God's nation. And our purpose is to bring people in to his nation, which requires us to be very different kind of human, an alien kind of human, one that's not accepted many times, one that's rejected. But that's not our purpose, is to be going around being loved and honored and and uh, uh, glorified, our purpose, again, is God's nation. And how we act, how we speak, how we pray, what arms we carry with us, invites others to come into God's nation. So let's summarize these basic foundation principles that believers need to keep focus and their purpose on that sadly has caused deep division in our nation and in our churches. Love God. Love our fellow human being, love God's truth, and love God's nation. Believers 
We're to examine our behavior, our positions, based on these principles. We believers are not to confuse our preferences or the false discipleship about these basic principles at all. We're supposed to have clarity of mind, not confusion, not misunderstanding, not using that by every means necessary or the ends justify the means. So I'll support people who are liars, cheaters, adulterers, so that I will hold up people who are charged with crimes as being model citizens. No wonder the world mocks us because we have lost the basics and they know the basics. In our society, they know them because they've heard them so often. And yet we, we let them down because we say, nah, we're really like you. And we're going to use the same powerful weapons you have in our arsenal. We're going to take our sword and we're going to cut your ear off. That, my friends, is not God's nation's way. It's easy to drift away from these basic foundation principles. That's why we need to be seeking continual renewal of our minds. Romans 12.2, one of those whited out verses in our Jeffersonian Bibles that we carry. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, His pleasing and perfect will. It's a renewal of our mind. It's a constant battle. It's sad, I know. It seems like it's so much hard work, but it really isn't. When the Holy Spirit comes and heals you of your past sins, of your past deceptions, of the past letdowns you've had, He begins to reform you and change you and have you look at the world very differently. It takes time. I wish I could sell you some five-step formula. I'd be very wealthy, like the guys on TV. Right? I, I could have a mega church and, in, and, in, and bring in thousands and lots of millions of dollars. But I don't have secret formulas. I don't have instantaneous change to offer you. What I can offer you is what the scripture is. This is a continual process. It's a lifelong process. And it's one that we have to continually be on. And today, we have the luxury of having all those scrolls in a very lightweight little package. We have it electronically in our hands. And daily discipline, that's what discipleship is, a discipline of seeking him out, integrating his word into our mind, changes us. Remember, Christ prayed for us. What did he say? Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. That's the discipleship we need. We may have to turn off even Christian TV and radio. We may have to put aside some Christian books that lead us astray from God's nation because we have to focus on being renewed in our minds to think as Christ thinks, to put into practice what he wants us to do, to understand what his will is, not our will. The Bible is not our weapon to get what we want. It's not to put to God work for us, to put us to work for God. It's to see what God has already done for us. It's to show us our weakness and our utter dependency that we have on him. And that our message should penetrate the world to bring them to their knees, not to their fists, to bring them to repentance, not to more arrogance and narcissism. It's to bring the world to submission to God's power, not to defy him even more. That's why we need a renewed mind. It gives us the ability to obey God's command, to love others, to bring others into a nation. Renewing our mind gives us the ability to carry out his will, not our whims, his desires, not our preferences, his plans, not our demands. Renewing our minds gives us strength to examine our thoughts and behavior, to evaluate them, to check them. If they conform to the basics of the faith or do they follow the basics of our political philosophies? So I invite you today to renew your commitment to the basics. Study and apply God's word to understand God's truth. To apply it with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and your mind. And I invite you to compare your life your speech, your social media posts with God's commands. And I encourage you to be a people of truth and clarity.
not confusion, not confused about what our biblical mission is. And I believe, my brethren, that that is the way forward. Is a focus on the basics and to compare what we say, what we do, and we think with the clear outline basics in God's word. And that should drive our speech and our behavior. And so for anyone that's listening or watching, in case you haven't made the first basic step in being Christ's disciples, I invite you to place your faith in Christ, to receive his sacrifice on the cross that he made for you. He did all the work. You, need, you don't need to, to, to earn your love. He already loves you. And, re, and what you need to do is to receive his love that he gave to you by offering the son to take all your sins, to take the punishment you deserve, to receive that sacrifice on the cross. And you start by repenting. That means realizing that you have sinned, that you've disobeyed God, that your heart is rotten, and that you need cleaning and you need forgiveness. And then when you receive his sacrifice for you, he loves you. And his desire is for you to commit to obey him. This is not about just saying, I believe, but actually doing now what he says. Christ will forgive you of your wrongs. He'll renew your mind. He'll give you power to obey. And he'll never leave you all alone because he loves you dearly. Today is the day we can begin to be faithful disciples again. Our nation needs the principles of God nation. In Mac Avenue and other churches, we can refocus and continue to be faithful in what God has called us, even though the world may demand us to be very different. That's too bad for them. We're faithful to a higher power that we give our allegiance to. And we will be faithful in loving God and loving the person next to us. We want to love truth and proclaim truth. And we want others to understand what God's nation is all about. God bless you, brother.